Now I'm pleased to invite forward three West members who will talk about where they find beauty and how beauty finds them. In turn, we're going to hear from Sheila Walters, Barry Galef, and Sandra Bishop. I found beauty among big-hearted strangers far from home in what I regard as a three-year walkabout that took place in my youth. I landed in Los Angeles County in January 1972, where Ruth Isaacs, a close family friend, resided. It was not long after my folks hosted a fundraiser as part of the International Defense Campaign for black scholar and activist Angela Davis, who was charged by the state of California as a co-conspirator to a kidnapping and murder plot carried out by her Black Panther associates. Our house was a rather large one, so Angela's attorney, Howard Moore, and members of her family stayed with us. I had been a journalism student and asked Mr. Moore if I could come to the trial in San Jose. He said, sure, just look him up when I got there. It was a time of great political unrest, and I was quite the young militant, determined to be a witness to history. However, I had been languishing in a failure to launch pattern for two years, which was profoundly worrisome for my parents. <laughs> so they not too hesitantly bought me a one-way plane ticket <laughs> to LAX. I arrived at Ruth's in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains near Pasadena. I didn't have a plan or any money to speak of, but like W.C. Fields, I was just glad to be out of Philadelphia. <laughs> Ruth was a highly intelligent, no-nonsense registered nurse who preferred dogs to children, but had always made an allowance for me. While I remember back in the 1950s when she was in nursing school, she stayed at our house during summer breaks. She seemed to find me quite amusing as a toddler, especially whenever I blamed any of my misdeeds on Pogo, the family's fox terrier. Anyway, shortly after I arrived, she told me just how very far San Jose was <laughs> and that going there would be difficult for me with no money, no family, or guaranteed place to stay. But I would be welcome to stay with her indefinitely as long as I got a job. Well, I might have been a starry-eyed post-adolescent, but I was no fool, so I took her up on her offer. I think that was the real plan between her and mom all along. This was a time when industry was looking for qualified minorities to satisfy affirmative action mandates. I was offered a job at a, as a ward clerk at Lavinia Hospital and Sanatorium, where Ruth was conveniently employed. During that time, there was a news report about some neo-Nazi activity in the not-too-distant city of El Monte. I thought, glad I'm not there. And then I forgot about it. But ironically, soon after that, Pacific Telephone Company offered me a job as a plant service clerk. Guess where? El Monte. So Ruth and I talked over my options, the hospital was only 10 minutes away up the canyon road, but that job paid little. While El Monte was almost 90 minutes away, 
but paid three times as much. So Ruth, being a very wise, independent, single woman who practically raised herself in tough Depression-era New York City and started working adult jobs at the tender age of 15, showed me the value of not taking the easiest way in order to get a long-term benefit. In this case of struggling with a hard commute and possible racial discomfort to earn as much as I could. So I took the phone company job. What was most beautiful about the experience was that even though I never saw a single other African-American in El Monte, and except for a mildly unpleasant encounter with someone erratically driving one of the neo-Nazi surplus army trucks that almost ran into me trying to cross the street one day, everyone else I met there, from my coworkers at the plant, to the people operating other businesses welcomed me warmly and treated me extremely well. This was a time when America was far less homogenized than today. The Southern California and Southeastern Pennsylvania landscape, lifestyle, and political lens were distinctly different from each other. And even though I only stayed in that position for a year because I transferred out to the Pasadena mailroom as one of the first female motor messengers, the plant gave me a wonderful farewell luncheon as if I had been working there for years. After nearly two years, I moved on to the Boston area just in time for the distressing white backlash against school busing. And I found friendship and camaraderie among my coworkers at the Museum of Fine Arts and my Somerville neighbors. Again, living and working in environments where there were virtually no other African Americans, I was made to feel like I belonged, even though I was a stranger and basically just passing through. I think one of the reasons for my beautiful experiences away from home is because of the beautiful experiences I've had at home. My parents, both friendly nonconformists and rebels from traditional backgrounds, raised their children to not only treat others well, but to be open-minded enough to embrace and not just tolerate cultural diversity. They exposed us to people from all walks of life, from Chris, a Danish music critic, who once employed my mother as his housekeeper and became a lifelong friend, to Lawrence, currently a high public official in Ghana, who years before lived at our house as a University of Pennsylvania exchange student. There were so many other people in between, political activists like civil rights workers close to Dr. King, artists and musicians, displaced people, and even whole families needing refuge. The famous and the infamous were frequenters of our home. This beautiful lifestyle not only helped me to develop a worldview that values everyone, but also provided me with a sense of belonging to virtually everywhere and being able to hold my own in most situations, even a neo-Nazi presence. It laid the groundwork for my work with the frequently annoying, vulnerable populations in mental health and addictions. And even though cynicism might be a byproduct of militancy, I have become a more hopeful person whose level of tolerance for what is different was honed from the generosity of the spirit 
from so many people, beginning with my folks and extending out to those who unhesitatingly folded me into their lives and communities so that nearly everywhere I am, I feel safe and at home. As a visual artist, my first response to Amanda's question about finding beauty in an unexpected place was to send her an image that I found on the internet. It showed a film of oil dressed in rainbows, stretched into fanciful shapes by flowing water. Asked to add other places where I found beauty, I quickly wrote down a list not just of examples, but of categories of examples. First, objects shaped in response to a physical need, like sailboats, propellers, airfoils, gears, arches. Then, objects shaped by mathematical processes, helical shells, pine cones and spiraling seed heads, the curve of a hanging chain or cable. Next, objects shaped by the wearing effects of time and the elements, the Grand Canyon, of course, but also river rocks, iron meteorites, snowdrifts, wrinkled faces, networks of streams and their tributaries, pieces of silver or copper with the tarnish worn away where they've been handled. Still other categories included natural shapes like snowflakes, iridescent patterns, and so forth. And then I pulled back to ask myself, what thread draws all these disparate forms of beauty together? Now this begs the question of whether there is just one thread or even any thread at all that can be traced through them. There are no universal standards of beauty, as Marty Brockway pointed out last week. She commented on how someone in a foreign land might have trouble seeing beauty in a mountain if he had to drive goats up and down it. She stole a bit of my thunder, actually. (laughs) I had intended to bring up the fact that even in Europe, mountains were not considered beautiful as long as they were seen as obstacles and as unproductive unproductive wastes. And uh, as, as uh, Roberta observed in, uh, uh, in the quote that Elise read, they were considered sublime, not beautiful. They had an element of terror in them. Perhaps beautiful, then, is a word that we use for something that suggests or alludes to something that we value. Eons ago, value was food, like ripe red berries, or safety, or familiar faces, or fertility. And sometimes I wonder if sparkling things strike me as beautiful because they remind the recesses of my brain of sunlight on flowing water. Certainly that was one of the most valuable things that we would have been searching for out on the savannah. And I once read that a view of a town at dusk is infinitely more beautiful if we know that somewhere in that town is a person that we love. So with the idea of value in mind, I look across my array of beautiful things, and one of the common threads I find is integrity. In the smooth handle of a solid cast iron skillet or in hardwood furniture, 
The surface reveals the whole instead of hiding it. That's as opposed to the false facades that are so common today, like a wood grain formica veneer over a chipboard core. Another thread is that my beautiful objects lay bare processes or structures that might otherwise be hidden. The smoke curling up from an extinguished candle traces the invisible patterns of convection and turbulence in the air. And reflections on water show the patterns of the ripples. There's a sense of revelation, then, in their shapes that goes deeper than the arbitrary wiggles of an artist's hand. Yet another thread is that certain artifacts show how the world of necessity bears against objects. An airfoil must have a certain shape in order to produce lift. The propeller has an elegant and symmetrical twist, not on the designer's whim, but in surrendering to its function, and so on for the bellying of a sail and the curve of the planking on Adirondack guideboats. They're not like the awkward angular motorboat, which can make up in horsepower what it lacks in elegance. These curves, then, give me the sense that they're an inevitable consequence of an underlying process that's generating them. Or in other words, they're conveying truth, and I find that I value that. Last week, Amanda quoted from Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn. Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. Ironically, throughout the 20th century, there was a long critical debate on the value of those words. That line struck T.S. Eliot, for example, as, and I quote, a serious blemish on a beautiful poem. (laughs) Now, doesn't that bring home that there are no absolute standards of beauty? Another facet, though I find a baby's skin beautiful in its smoothness, I often find wrinkles and gray hair, too, particularly appealing. I think it's the way that gray communicates honesty. Another thing that's conveyed by faces that are aging without artifice is the effect of time. That's one last facet of beauty that I appreciate, not only in faces but in objects too. Worn bricks, heavily used stone stairs, the massive bronze handles on the doors of the National Gallery, slimmed down and polished by decades of patrons. Inscriptions on old gravestones partially effaced by the rain. Driftwood, bleached animal bones, clear glass turned amethyst in the sun, even fading advertising slogans painted on brick buildings. While I was mulling over these ideas, an old friend happened to point me toward a deeply foreign perspective that relates closely to them. It's the Japanese aesthetic termed wabi-sabi. Wabi-sabi is hard to translate, but it celebrates the accidental, the imperfect, and the decay that comes with time. I relate it especially to the beauty in this last aspect of wabi-sabi, the beautiful of the ephemeral, and the way it calls our attention to the exquisite sadness of finiteness and mortality. As some of you know, I carve particularly intricate pumpkins, illustrating whole stories rather than settling for a single arresting image. It takes many hours of carving over several days. And people often ask if it upsets me that the pumpkins are destined and soon for the compost heap. 
And if there isn't a way to preserve them, or, or if I could shift to a more lasting medium. But I noticed a long time ago that part of the appeal of my jack-o'-lanterns is exactly their transience. If people knew that they'd still be here in six months or a year, they'd feel they could afford to pass them by and come back another time. If they sense that they're impermanent, though, they look at them harder and more seriously, drinking in what they can before the pumpkin rots. Finally, as if to emphasize the importance of transience, I just happened to run across a relevant quote while reading a book on painting the American landscape. One theme in the book was how our landscape, originally a picture of unspoiled, almost, almost holy beauty, was fast disappearing. The quote read, It is this consciousness of destruction that gives, we feel, such a touching beauty to the solitudes of America. One sees them with a melancholy pleasure. One is in some sort of a hurry to admire them. The author was Alexis de Tocqueville in his book, Journey to America, way back in 1831. When I decided to talk about beauty, I had difficulty defining what beauty was, and essentially I settled on on value. Um, The things that I find beautiful, I find valuable, and things that have value, I see beauty in. Um, I own a company that does in-home therapy with kids and young adults with autism. We work on skill development, but our company places a special focus on teaching self-advocacy skills. For those of you who don't know what autism is, autism is a, neuro, um, is a neurological developmental disorder that affects communication, social skills, and executive functioning, which is sort of your ability to plan. Every person with autism presents differently, and um, every person with autism defines their skill set differently as well. Today, while I'm talking, I'm going to um, move back and forth between using the terms person with autism and autistic person. And the reason for that is that the terms um, are split within the community over what the preference is. So I'm going to honor both camps and alternate between the two. When I was asked to talk about autism, I was extremely nervous. And to be honest, I still am very nervous that I'm not going to get this right. There were two main issues that I was concerned about. The first was the discomfort in being a non-autistic person defining what is beautiful in autism. So I'd like to say at the beginning, if a person with autism disagrees with something I say, please elevate their opinion above mine. The second piece is that I was worried about standing up here and talking for seven minutes and just giving a long series of inspiration porn. So I hear the giggles, but raise your hand. Do you know what inspiration porn is? All right, so a lot of you know what it is. For those that you don't, inspiration porn on the surface appears to be an inspirational story about somebody that's overcome something and created something wonderful. However, if you really look at it, it's actually a story about something, about someone who has had something really, really awful happen to them that is so awful that the reader is supposed to imagine if that terrible thing happened to them, they would just curl up in a ball and never do anything valuable. But instead, this person did something that society as a whole finds valuable. Now, the problem with this is that it's particularly patronizing. 
Um, and it can be really harmful to the people that have this horrible thing happen to them, particularly if that terrible thing is their genes. Um, a common story that you see is a person with autism who is nonverbal who can paint a picture. And while I am amazed by the artwork, and I certainly hope that they're being paid and compensated fairly for this beautiful artwork, um, it, it's only valuing the piece that sort of society says is good and valuable and beautiful, while ignoring the person as a whole and all of the other contributions that they make. So with all that being said, <laughs> I decided that I would talk about the three stages that I went through in recognizing the beauty in autism. And I would like to place a trigger warning that there will be some ableist um, ideas that are discussed today. So <clears throat> the very first step that I went through was simply recognizing the humanity in people with autism, which is a pretty low bar to reach. Um, prior to joining my field, I really had no experience with people with disabilities. I went, into, I went to school in a segregated school district that had people with special needs in one school. And so in, when I was 19, I got a job that would let me leave for the summer so that I could go to Ghana with Tom. And it happened to be working in group homes with adults with autism. The very first day that I walked into work, I was extremely overwhelmed. And I am ashamed by the number of ableist thoughts that I had. Thoughts that you can certainly imagine that you have maybe even experienced yourself, and thoughts that I'm not going to repeat because they are so harmful and so offensive. Um, and, and very quickly, within days, I, I, I entered stage one where I was able to recognize the humanity, where I was able to realize that, hey, these people have likes and dislikes. They are human. They have passion. Um, and it, it really is shameful that that was a step that I had to reach. So while I was in this very low-level step, um, I fell in love with um, the field, with therapy, and I quickly entered what I, what I call step two, which is where I recognized the beauty in skill growth. And essentially, this is that step where a lot of the inspiration porn comes from. It's the beauty in erasing the autism. It's the idea that, hey, this person's autistic, but if I work with them enough, these autistic traits will go away, and isn't that cool, and isn't that beautiful? Um, I remember the first time I took a seven-year-old to the park, and the beauty and the celebration I had, because nobody realized that the kid was autistic. I remember the first time a kid who had this passion for car manuals um, had his first conversation about the weather. And I remember the joy I felt the first time that I had a client who used to wave something in front of his eyes to soothe himself, and I saw beauty and value in him not doing that anymore. And a lot of people and a lot of people in my field um, really are at this stage, and it's still harmful. It's harmful for people with autism, and it's harmful for people who don't want to fit into the normative standards that we have set over how people should act. And so I entered stage three. And this is the last stage I know of. Um, I am 
absolutely certain that there are additional steps that I am not aware of. And maybe in a couple years, I'll come back and talk to you about that. Or better yet, we'll ask somebody with autism from our community to come and talk about how they want us to perceive beauty. But for now, this is where I'm at. And this is seeing beauty in what exists, in the in, in the beauty in autism itself. Um, this is, you know, I, I'm able to see the value in beauty in just diversity. And most of us in this community can see that value in other types of diversity. You know, we agree that colorblindness is a problem and that we should be interacting with people outside of our comfort zone. And with disability, I have gained so much by the people who identify as disabled in my life, um, not because they're my hero or because they've overcome this awful thing, but because they have value as a person and they have neat things to say. Um, also, I'm able to now see the beauty in these self-stimulatory behaviors, this rocking back and forth, this waving in the eyes. And initially, I wanted to say I found it beautiful because of the, the, the rhythms and things like that. But I still felt that that was othering. When in fact, the beauty I actually see is the beauty in the ability to self-soothe in an environment where the world is not designed to meet your needs. And that is truly beautiful. And also, I see the beauty in the passion that some of the kids I work with and the young adults, and also there are plenty of adults with autism, I just happen to not work with them, so my background is on kids and young adults. But I see the beauty in the passion over a subject. You know, it's pretty amazing, the passion that one of my kids can have over the manual of his car. Like, that's cool. And so, as I think about these steps... And I, I, I ask you all to sort of think about where you may be on this paradigm, recognizing that there are probably variations and different places where we've all been, but to really focus on trying to see the beauty in autism and disability and difference in general, um, rather than trying to fit people into a normative framework. Um, part of this is us, but part of this has to be a societal change too. Our world is not set up to recognize the beauty and difference. And working towards that change... Um, being and recognizing that these early stages, recognizing humanity, trying to change people, are harmful. Um, the Autistic Self Advocacy Network is an organization run by autistic self advocates that focuses on advocacy and equality, and and by my definition, promoting beauty. Um, and so, as we look towards defining beauty in autism. I would like us to remember their slogan, which is, nothing for us without us. So I encourage you to please go and read blogs by autistic self-advocates for more details on how people with autism want us to recognize their beauty. And I want us to just listen to what people have to say and what people have written and move away from only listening to the beauty that parents find, but the beauty that people with autism find in themselves. So I really, I would like to leave you with the thought and the plea to please not look for the beauty that you think could be, but for the beauty that already exists.